Let us pray. O God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this golden privilege to worship you, the only true God of the universe. We come to you today grateful that you have kept us through the long night of the past and ushered us into the challenge of the present and the bright hope of the future. We are mindful, O God, that men and women cannot save themselves, for we are not the measure of things, and humanity is not God. Bound by our chains of sins and finiteness, we know we need a Savior. We thank you, O God, for the spiritual nature of humanity. We are in nature, but we live above nature. Help us never to let anybody or any condition pull us so low as to cause us to hate. Give us strength to love our enemies and to do good to those who despitefully use us and persecute us. We thank you for your church, founded upon your word, that challenges us to do more than sing and pray, but go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depended on us and not upon you. Then finally, help us realize that women and men were created to shine like stars and live on through eternity. Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Help us to walk together, pray together, sing together, and live together until that day when all God's children, black, brown, white, red, and yellow, will rejoice in one common band of humanity in the kingdom of our Lord and of our God. We pray. Amen. As prayed by MLK Jr. You may be seated. We want to say again, welcome to our annual celebration of God as he worked through the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And, um, and the principles that he expounded such that it impacts our lives today. As we celebrate this chapel, we also want to welcome um, those of our visitors that are here, soon to be part of our family. Uh, is it, is it VIP or, 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 or red carpet visitors? Uh, why, don't, why, don't, why don't you all wave your hands so we know that, we know that you all are here. Welcome. Welcome. Give them a warm ENC welcome. We have a lot in store for you today, but as we continue, one of the, we, we want to show uh, um, three clips, three video clips. The first one, uh, the first of the clips is, is going to be um, showing Martin Luther King Jr. and his family, showing that he was a man, um, a father. He was a husband. He was a son. He was a Baptist preacher. The second clip you'll see is when, as he developed, um, as, as he evolved throughout his lifetime, he uh, began to see justice in much broader terms. And when he began to look at the Vietnam War and what was happening also in regards to poverty throughout the United States and around the world, and recognized that some people 
as he spoke out about it, there were some people that began to drop on the wayside and move against him. And he spoke about that, and that's the second clip. And then, then the last clip, it was the night before he was assassinated. It was when uh, he, uh, he reflected at, in this clip about the time that he was uh, stabbed by, as he called it, a demented woman. And that, that, that blade got very close to his heart. And the doctor said if he had sneezed, if he had only sneezed, that knife would, would have punctured his aorta valve and he might have um, drowned in his own blood. And then he got a letter from a young, uh, from a ninth grade female uh, that thanked him that he didn't sneeze. And he remembered that. But, but I want you to pay attention as he reflected upon that letter as to what he was able to see. And we'll talk about uh, some of those other things in just, in just a minute. I used to love to be at their home. He had a game he played with each child. They had a, a kiss mark. Uh, one child had a forehead and one had a cheek. The other had the other cheek and the other one had the chin. And what he would do sometimes, he'd grab them and to give them a kiss and he'd pretend like uh, uh, he's going to the wrong side. No, 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 Daddy, that's my side, that's my side. And he was doing that just to add some jocular moments to, to the setting. Daddy, you're not talking. I'm too hungry, Mother. I'm so hungry, I'm busy with this dinner. Others can do what they want to do. That's their business. Other civil rights leaders, for various reasons, refuse or can't take a stand or have to go along with the administration. That's their business. But I'm a Satanite. That I know that justice is indivisible. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 
when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. The Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. There's an exercise when, um, that I'm quite... Um, an exercise that we conduct that I really love, and it begins... Uh, it's, it's, it's where we use carpet squares to create a minefield. We use carpet squares to create a minefield. And we have, for those that, are, that need to go through this minefield, we let them know that if you step on a mine in this minefield, then me as the person who is conducting the exercise, let them know and you've just lost a limb. If you hit a second minefield, you die, figuratively. And uh, the group, one by one, would go through this minefield, and they'd have a limb blown off. And secondly, they would die, and then they'd go off to the side. Second person would come through. They see where those couple of mines are. They bypass those and move a little further. And so on and so on and so on. Until finally, you have people are able to see the mines and negotiate the minefield and get to the other side. The question that we begin to ask those, especially you have many who, after seeing the first and third and fourth people that got through the minefield, they're now able to even uh, dance and make jokes as they go through the minefield. We ask them, for those as they get through, we ask them, what is, how are you going to live your life on this other side of the minefield? Looking at those and remembering those who have either lost a limb or died. We are here today, able to be in this setting. White, brown, red, yellow, black. And be in this context because others have been through the minefield. 
Just recently, I was in Atlanta, and I was able to visit the King Center again, and, and saw a lot about, and saw all the clips and, 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 and writings associated with what those folks did back in the 60s. And I wondered, how are we living today? Recognizing that those who came before us, and recognizes that we have minefields ahead, and how are we looking out for justice? So this morning, we're going to hear from our Dr. LaRue. He's going to come up and share with us. Last night, he shared a bit in regards to the shape of Christianity in the 21st century. It was a rich experience. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad that, that, that for those of you who were here, that were there, were able to experience that. Dr. LaRue is a, a, a seminarian. He's a professor of homiletics and received his bachelor's and master's degree from Baylor University. Both his MDiv and PhD degrees from Princeton Seminary. He specializes in the theory and method of African-American preaching and worship. He's an ordained minister in the National Baptist Convention of America. Dr. LaRue is a former pastor of two churches in Texas as well as the interim pastor of churches in uh, Harlem and in Jamaica, Queens, New York. He has published multiple books. He's a frequent speaker at churches, seminaries, and conferences throughout the country and is a member of the Academy of Homiletics. And we will hear from him this morning. We are so honored that he is here with us. Before he speaks, our own Ronan Storer would share special with us. Ronan is a recent alum of ENC, a loved friend. Let's welcome Ronan, and right after him, we hear Good morning. What a moment you have brought me to such a freedom I have found in you. You're the healer who makes all things new, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going back, I'm moving ahead. I'm here to declare to you the past is over in you. The things are made new, surrendered my life to Christ. I'm moving, moving forward. second chance hallelujah hallelujah yeah 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 Ooh, not not going back i'm moving ahead i'm here to declare to you the past is over in you all things are made new Surrendered my life to Christ I'm moving, not going back I'm moving ahead Here to declare to you The past is over in you All 
to you. Let us pray. Come now, O Lord, in power and in might. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Thank you to those of you who have invited me here for this MLK worship service. I am most grateful to you and always enjoy coming this way. I've been to this school before in one capacity or another, so thank you. I want to talk this morning, uh, and I'm conscious of the time, I want to talk this morning about a people with two histories. And I'm talking about African Americans, but I want you to listen in. I want you to overhear what I'm saying. I would preach this in a service to predominantly African Americans, and I want you to listen in this morning because of what has been going on in the country. The text is taken from Revelation, the fifth chapter, verses one through six. I'll only read verse one in the interest of time. 
And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book. In the week that is before us, we celebrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. And we think once again of the struggle of oppressed people in this country. I want to look again at the struggle of the oppressed, not so much from Dr. King's point of view, but rather from heaven's point of view. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book. The one on the throne is God. And the book was in God's right hand. And it was filled with writing. It had so much writing that it was written on the backside and on the binding. And it was sealed with seven seals. It is with this sealed book in mind that I want to talk about a people with two histories. For when I look at the struggle of African Americans in this country... I see two histories unfolding before us, human history and salvation history. I have taken my text from Revelation, for John signifies for us which of these two histories is the more important. Now, when I say human history, I mean the activities and occurrences of our earthly existence. I mean the recorded deeds and the recorded activities of our human affairs as they happen in space and time. That is what I mean by human history. Events as they happen in space and in time. Humans, this odd mixture of dust and divinity. Humans, this strange assemblage of treasure and trash, gold and garbage. Because they are both witnesses to and participants in human history. Humans tend to think that they are in charge of history. Because humans both witness to and participate in activities and occurrences in our earthly existence. They tend to think that they are in charge of history. But salvation history says God is in charge of history. God shapes the overall course of the historical process. It is God who intervenes from time to time in particular events. And it is God who will bring his saving purposes to a triumphant conclusion when human history shall have run its course. Salvation history says God is in charge of history. So there are two kinds of history. There is human history where humans think they are in charge. And there is salvation history where God knows he's in charge. Now, how you view the struggle of African-Americans in this country depends a lot on who you think is in charge. Now, if you think humans are in charge, you are worried this morning. For we have had a troubling past year. And we have to be honest about that. Our young black men have been shot dead in the streets. Some in their 40s have been choked to death. Some as young as 12 have been shot to death within two seconds of the police arriving on the scene. So at this time of the year, when we pause to reflect on the contributions of Martin Luther King Jr. in particular, 
and African Americans in general, I would like to look at the black pilgrimage in America through these two lenses, human history and salvation history. If you look at our struggle only through the lens of human history, things don't look so well. But if you will come up higher and look at the struggle from God's point of view, then you will know that Yogi Berra was right when he said it ain't over till it's over. Alan Anderson, in his book, Confronting the Color Line, said there have been two times, only two times throughout our long history in this country, when America as a nation summoned her resources to expunge race as an issue from its common life. Anderson says only two times. 1865 to 1877, and 1954 to 1966. Both instances were characterized by three identifiable periods. A period of social unrest and violence, followed by a period of substantial gains in civil rights, which was followed by a period of backlash and retrenchment. In the 1860s, when America confronted the issue of race, true to form, it ushered in a period of social unrest and violence. A Republican from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860, and shortly thereafter, civil war broke out between the North and the South. When the guns fell silent in 1865, 600,000 people, including Lincoln, lay dead. That violence was followed by a period of advancement in civil rights. The slaves were freed. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution were passed. But that period was followed by backlash and retrenchment. Reconstruction came to an end. Jim Crow laws were enacted throughout the South. White and colored-only signs went up, and the Ku Klux Klan took on new life. The second time America moved as a nation to confront the problem of race was in the 1950s and the 1960s. And here again, we see the same pattern. It initiated a period of great social unrest and violence. There were sit-ins and freedom rides, demonstrations and boycotts. And I want to remind you this morning, as I hurry, I want to remind you this morning that the people who participated in those sit-ins and in those freedom rides and boycotts and demonstrations, they were your age. They were in their late teens and early 20s. They were your age. And they were black and they were white. But they took up the cause of justice, even in their late teens and in their early 20s. It initiated a period of great social unrest and violence. There were sit-ins and freedom rides, demonstrations and boycotts. People were beaten and jailed. Some lost their lives. Then came the substantial gains, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Open Housing Act. This was followed by a period of backlash and retrenchment in the 70s and 80s as the country moved from sensitivity to outright resistance. When we look at our pilgrimage through the lens of human history, things don't look so good. We vacillate somewhere between high hopes and shattered dreams. We thought history would treat African-Americans fairly during the American Revolution when the founding fathers drew up that famous document that said in part, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. 
But when they drew up the Constitution, we found that they were only going to count blacks as three-fifths of a man. Our hopes were raised again when Abraham Lincoln came along. How black people rejoiced on that cold first day of January in 1863 when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and set black people free. But later we learned that Lincoln, as great as he was, early on had gone on record as saying, if I could save the Union without freeing the slaves, I would do it. We thought during our time in slavery that if we got religion and joined the churches, surely the churches would help get things right. But our hopes were dashed once again for C.C. Goen in his book, Broken Churches, Broken Nation, pointedly reminds us that before the outbreak of the Civil War, three large denominations split over the question of slavery. The Methodist split in 1844, the Baptist split in 1845, and the Presbyterian split again in 1861. And right after the churches split, the country split. Whenever we have tried to find salvation in something other than God, we have always been disappointed. This is why we must never forget that God is in charge of history. And it is God who shall have the last word on what happens to us. We are workers together with God for a more just and peaceful world. It is God who has kept a constant drumbeat of hope on the battlefield. It is God who continues to send women and men into battle to effect God's ultimate purposes on earth. Each time one soldier plays out, God stands ready to send another into battle. Frederick Douglass led the fight in the years during the Civil War, and he died in 1895. That same year, 1895, W.E.B. Du Bois graduated with a Ph.D. from Harvard. Du Bois died in Africa in August of 1963, one day before Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And the day Dr. King fell in Memphis, God readied other soldiers for battle, for God is in charge of the ultimate outcome of the struggle. I am convinced that Martin King's greatest contribution to America was that he allowed himself to be used by God in that history where God shall have the last word. Human history is trying to take God out of King's work. He is now simply referred to as a great civil rights leader who went around dreaming all the time. But he was not only a civil rights leader. King was also a preacher prophet who declared God's righteousness, justice, and peace. And I tell you, God was at work in King in a unique way. For how else could he have done so much for so many in such a short amount of time? King graduated high school when he was 15. He finished Morehouse College at 19. He held a Ph.D. from Boston University by the time he was 26. He talked with presidents at the age of 29. He gave his I Have a Dream speech at the age of 34, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize at the tender age of 35, and he was shot dead in Memphis at the age of 39. 
God had his hands on him. And King said yes to God's will and God's way. But some will protest that King was a different kind of Negro. A charismatic genius who went around quoting poets and philosophers. Yes, he quoted Augustine and Aquinas, Hume and Hegel, Kant and Kierkegaard. But whenever he quoted them, he was always trying to point out what God was doing in salvation history. Well, I guess you could say, was not his work in vain? Look how young he died. And for what? Does it pay really to serve God and to give your life for others? Does it pay to give your life to a cause higher than yourself? Does it pay to pursue peace and justice? Does it pay to stand for the right and against the wrong? Does it pay to hitch your hopes to salvation history and place your life in the redemptive purposes of God? If you really want to know the answers, come and go with me to that isle called Patmos and hear John say once again, then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. What is in that book? I believe this book contains the meaning of human history, but more important, it contains the actions of God over human history. God is not confined to human history nor governed by it, but God rules and super rules over it. John is telling us that our destiny is in God's hands. Our daily bread is in God's hands. Our hope for tomorrow is in God's hands. God alone knows the outcome of our struggle. And God alone will have the last word. If you who are here this morning want your life to count for something, then I urge you to live it in service to God. Let your prayer be, I want to live so God can use me anywhere, anytime. Let your prayer be, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to be to thee. God is in charge of history and God shall have the last word. Let us be partners. Let us be workers together with God and God's redemptive work upon this earth. And the people of God said. Thank you, Dr. LaRue. A couple of things before we close out chapel today. One is this evening, um, Dr. Millican will be sharing, I think, his... Uh, his last concert this evening. We want to urge you to attend that this evening. Right after that, as um, right after that, over in the student center, we're going to have an open mic night where we begin to talk about, as we talked about earlier, about those who came before us, about your heroes and how you celebrate them in your life today. Again, that's this evening, right after the Brady Millican concert. Are you with me? Are you with me? Amen, 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 amen. We want to thank you for being here today. Not just to be in chapel, but to be inspired by God's word. To be inspired by a man who said yes to God and God's call upon his life. What is God call, God's call on yours? We pray this morning that you go 
and you do likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Here to lead us in our recessional is Dr. Brady Millican, and he will play a favorite hymn. It's called the National Anthem of the African American. I'm sorry, Lambert Brandis. <laughs> I'm thinking Brady Millican. Um, and he's going to play as, as, as uh, for, all, for all the recessional, lift every voice and sing. Amen. Go in God's grace and in his peace. God bless you all.